Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Today, we are talking about the neurophysiology of anxiety and what we can do about it. Our guide is Dr. Katherine Pittman, a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at St. Mary's College in Indiana. Known as the Amygdala Whisperer, Catherine is also the author of several books, including Rewire Your Anxious Brain, How to Use the Neuroscience of Fear to End Anxiety, Panic, and Worry, and Teaming Your Amygdala, Brain-Based Strategies to Quiet the Anxious Mind. I talked with Catherine about the brain regions responsible for anxiety and why it is important for all of us, whether we are clinicians or not, to have some understanding of the neurology of the anxiety response. Catherine, I want to welcome you to Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Before we go into the details uh, of the anxiety response, many of our listeners are clinicians. Why is understanding physiology important to to us and to our clients? Well, first of all, Saul, just I want to say thank you for inviting me here. And I really love the opportunity to answer that question because if we don't have a reason why we ask our clients to do certain things, why we we want them to engage in certain kind of interventions. And often, let's remember, our interventions are sometimes difficult ones, um, like exposure, for example. If we're expecting our clients to participate in these, it really helps if they understand there's a reason. And one of the reasons why we do it is understanding how the brain learns and how different parts of the brain learn differently. So if you can really understand this, you know, the basic physiology, the underlying underlying, um, neurophysiology of anxiety, you understand why we're doing the things that we're doing. So that's why it really helps for both our therapists and also our clients to understand that we are actually trying to change the brain and that the physiology underlying the anxiety response is important to understand. And I feel very, very privileged to have disorders that I'm working with where we do understand the basic physiology. And so I think actually we shouldn't be practicing without taking advantage of this knowledge. If you understand what it is in the brain that creates anxiety, you are so much further ahead than another person trying to assist someone who doesn't understand that physiology. And we want to make use of everything we know when we're helping our clients. Well, I think you'll find this, uh, our listeners are receptive audience. Uh, the folks who tend to do biofeedback and neurofeedback are, are integrating physiology and psychosocial response. So uh, I, th- I think it, it should be an interesting uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. So a- anxiety is absolutely, it's a, it's a universal experience. And m- many of us clinicians have our practices filled with people who experience problematic anxiety that they want to you know, get rid of or manage right. or fix. It shows up in lots of different ways. Uh, you might study extra for a really tough exam coming up, or you might feel like you can't leave your house. Uh, at, and at its worst, it can feel like our body has gone into open revolt against our minds, at least at least our rational minds. 
however anxiety shows itself, there is a physiologic pathway between the trigger and the anxiety response. Since, like you were suggesting, knowledge is power, could you walk us through that pathway through how the body creates anxiety? Okay. So what I'm going to do here too, I want to explain is remember that we want to be able to explain this to individuals who don't always have a background in neurophysiology. So I want to say that one of the things that one of the reasons I kind of got that nickname of amygdala whisperer is that I'm I'm interested in having um, the information I'm sharing be at a level that the average person suffering from anxiety can understand. So I'm I'm going to make an effort when I explain this to really make sure I explain it in a way that is not too neuro, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So I just want you to say I'm doing that deliberately. So just thinking about what the basic physiology of the anxiety response is, we have to immediately kind of back away from talking about anxiety and realize that anxiety is just one piece, one piece of a bigger response that involves the whole body. Because anxiety is just the emotion that we experience, but the anxiety is part of what happens when our body creates what we often call the fight or flight response. And if you know about it, you realize that it's actually more appropriately caused, called the fight or flight or freeze response, that our body is programmed and our brain is programmed to initiate this process in which we have a great defense response. And the defense response, the fight, flight, or freeze response is just what I'm, it sounds like. It's a response that our brain and body has create, can create to defend us from danger. So when we're trying to understand anxiety, right away, we often find ourselves having to say more, that this is just one piece of something more that's happening. And you, as you were saying, individuals, when they're experiencing anxiety, they're experiencing this sensation often and sometimes overwhelming panic and sometimes a feeling that they're going crazy. And if you can relate this to that fight, flight, freeze response, to that defense response and help the person to understand that this is their brain trying to create a whole defensive maneuvering platform for them so they can run away or they can fight off an intruder, or they can freeze and become basically invisible or non-threatening or whatever they need to do to survive. Now, where's anxiety in that picture? Anxiety is what happens when we experience this, what you could call emotion and physiological processes going on in our body. And the part of, of us that understands that is the cortex that can help us to sense the physiological responses that can help us to interpret the the feelings as an emotion and identify it as fear or anxiety because really fear, anxiety, panic all are part of this defense response. And we call it say a panic attack mostly when we don't think it makes sense for it to be happening if you are in a car accident and you need to be able to, you know, access a whole bunch of adrenaline and strengthen your muscles and a feeling of determination and energy, 
and you need to basically break a window or pry open a door or whatever. We don't call that a panic attack. We call that what is needed to help us survive, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're sitting preparing to give a speech and you have that same rush of adrenaline, heart rate changing, muscle tension changing, even blood, blood flow shifting and glucose being released in the bloodstream and all of that, then we call it panic because we say, why should you be experiencing it now? But what is happening is we are responding in a way, a centuries old pre-programmed response set that is that is wired into our brain and body that allows us to escape from dangers in certain situations, just that we're not living in the situation, you know, you haven't had a coyote or a tiger trying to eat you recently, you know, so you're you're really maybe you don't feel like you need it, but it continues to be occasionally valuable for us. And so what we try to do with our clients is explain what's going on in their body and their brain. And that anxiety is a piece of that, but there's a lot more to it. And so most of us who treat anxiety end up talking about the fight or flight response, or as I say, the fight, flight, or freeze response. And I think it's very useful to talk about it as a defense response, because then it reminds us that this is a response intended to defend us, but sometimes it's occurring in error. It's occurring when you're trying to talk to a room full of people who are looking at you expectantly. There's no tigers, but your body is still reacting as though you're about to be attacked by a tiger. So we've evolved this defensive response, uh, which uh, has a whole set of bodily reactions to what we perceive as danger. And I guess from an evolutionary or survivability perspective, it makes more sense to have more uh, false positives than false false negatives. So we may right, respond. Right. And particularly, as you said, in, in, in our society, for most of us, uh, not all of us, but most of us, we aren't facing threats to life and limb in any regular way. And yet our brains haven't evolved along with us or, or with, our, with our society. And every once in a while... Every once in a while, that response does save our lives. It's not, it's not useless. If you're on the highway and something comes into the lane in front of you, and before you can think in your cortex, some other part of your brain causes you to make a quick defensive maneuver without thinking. I'm talking about without deciding, without thinking in the cortex. So you actually make a maneuver. It could be hitting the brakes. It could be hitting the gas and moving around an object. It could be swerving to the left off the road. You know, but whatever happens, you almost say, how did I do? I don't even know what I did. You almost feel like something else did that. And so this is the thing I need to explain to my clients to say there's a part of your brain you do not have control over. It is going to protect you. You want to meet this part of your brain so that you can understand how you can impact it because it is the part of your brain that causes anxiety and the fight or flight response in this part of your brain is called the amygdala. So I want to introduce this part, even though it's two amygdalas, we, we tend to refer to it as the amygdala. Um, one's on the left, one's on the right, but we, we definitely want to introduce them to this, but they don't really necessarily want to know this at first, but once you explain the pathways to anxiety and you explain how it is that, that, fear and anxiety are created in the brain, 
suddenly people are interested in getting to know this part of themselves that is in a part of your brain you're not familiar with, like most parts of our brain, let's be honest. We don't know most parts. We don't know how our occipital lobes process vision. We don't, it's not some mysterious, there's a lot of parts of our brain we don't know. And we're happy to have them working on their own. I don't have to know how they work. But you know what, when it comes to anxiety, it helps to know how this part of your brain learns and how this part of your brain works. Given that the audience is is clinicians, primarily clinicians who know about this, and given that the amygdala is my personal favorite part of the brain, could you... <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. That's the one I'm at least professionally most interested in. But w- let's dig into that a little bit. Tell, t- talk a little bit about what the amygdala is, and and, and I think you've already alluded to, it. It's it's the part that is responding before we know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you it d- can respond before. So let's talk about how that happens and how that's set up in the brain. When when sensory information is coming in through our different sense organs, the way that information is directed, first of all, is to the thalamus. And I don't always tell my clients about the thalamus. Um, it kind of depends on who you're speaking to, but I know our, our um, therapist here will understand that there's this part of the brain in the center of the brain about the size of a walnut that is called the thalamus. And after the information comes in from our sense organs and goes there, the thalamus sends it to two different places. And this is why we have these two different pathways, okay? So first of all, I want people to understand that the thalamus is able to send it more quickly to this area we're talking about called the amygdala. And the amygdala is very closely located to the thalamus and it's also very well connected, uh, wired into all kinds of parts of the brain, included, including the hypothalamus and the hippocampus and the brainstem in order to influence a lot of our bodily processes. The amygdala does a lot of other things though, besides anxiety and fear. So sometimes when I try to explain to my clients um, what it is and where it is, in the brain, they will often say, can I just get rid of it? And I explain it's very involved in a lot of important things, you know, like anger, which we need and, and um, attraction and different things, positive emotions too. So you don't want to get rid of it, but you do want to understand it. Okay. So the amygdala receives the information from the thalamus and right away, it is allowed to make a very quick assessment of that information to see if that information poses any kind of a threat. And remember, it also assesses if there's positive things you want to move toward, but you know that's not where we're going today. So it's looking for threats. It's always looking for a potential danger to you. But one thing that we know about the amygdala, it does not have the ability to process information, whether it's visual, auditory, whatever, in the detail that the cortex can. So the amygdala is not going to, I guess you could kind of say, see things as clearly or hear things as clearly or it, or interpret things as in as much detail as the cortex can, okay? But remember, the amygdala is here as kind of a, an alarm system or a protector, a watchman, right? So what it does is it takes a look at what it is that's being, being processed And if it looks like something that could be a potential danger, according to the way the amygdala processes information, it can put into effect this defense response. And before you are even 
you, the person, are having access to the information, the amygdala can create a response. And it affects so many different parts of your body, that fight or flight response, right? Now, the thing that I, I want to be clear about is only the amygdala can produce the, the defense response. The cortex cannot produce the defense response. If in your cortex you think, I could use the defense response right now, let's start it up. I'm sorry, you you cannot deliberately produce the defense response. Only the amygdala can is wired up correctly to be able to affect all these different parts of the body. I mean, from your digestive process to blood flow and just all kinds of things. And so it's always up to, you could say, the the amygdala, these deeper centers of the brain that we're not so conscious of, that that this defense response is created. So one thing that this this should tell our clients is we shouldn't ever think that we can completely control our emotional reactions in the sense of they're likely to occur and we need to say interrupt them or redirect them or whatever, but it is very difficult to tell people uh, this is how you keep the amygdala from impacting your life because it's wired to jump in there before you're even, you even have access to sensory information. So that I think that's a very good thing to think this is the quick path. And there's a reason we need it to be quick because we, we are not going to survive certain situations if we take too long to respond or if we sit and think about it too long. Okay, so here's one path to anxiety. Information comes in from the sensory systems, from the sensory inputs and goes to your thalamus. Thalamus shares that information, sends that information to the amygdala and the amygdala then either reacts or passes, you know, and when it does react, let's be clear that the amygdala only has certain options. It doesn't have, let's have a consultation with this person or whatever. It has fight, flight, freeze as its primary responses that it can, it can um, initiate. Okay. Well, what about, is there another way? Yes, there's another way that anxiety or fear or panic can be created going along with that defense response. And this pathway is a somewhat longer pathway. It goes from, starts with the sense organs again, then moves to the thalamus. And at the same time, the thalamus sends it to the amygdala. It also sends it up into the cortex for processing. And it has to get to the right area, as you know. You know, your visual information's processed in the back of your brain, occipital lobes, your, your auditory information in temporal lobes. So it it takes a little longer to get there than to get to the to get to the amygdala. So we're talking about a slower pathway, but a more detailed producing pathway so that you can get clear information. You can interpret, you can use some logic, you can um, rely on the basis of past experiences or even other people's past stories you can call in with your cortex. There's a lot of processing that you can do with this information. So by the time the cortex kind of finishes processing, the amygdala may have already made a response. But when the cortex is processing the information, I want to be clear that the amygdala has access to cortex processing, has many connections up into the cortex, kind of like being able to monitor and, and also to influence cortex responding. So the, the amygdala will have access to that information. So in, we have to mention Joe Ledoux's name at least once in this discussion, because he's the one who did so much of this research on the amygdala, and he and his colleagues identified these different pathways. 
he has a great example where he talks about if you're walking in the woods and there's a curvy brown shape on the ground, then you may jump back from it. Your heart rate changes, adrenaline's released, your muscles are tense, all these different things happen before you can even process it in your cortex because the amygdala gets access to the information, reacts to it. looks like a curvy brown shape. That could be a snake, could be a threat, according to the way the amygdala is looking for danger. Well, so we jump back from it, but, but then the information continues to chug along from the thalamus up into the cortex and the cortex eventually, just in a matter of fractions of seconds, but afterwards gets information, the crisp, crisp clear information that this is a curvy vine or stick on the ground and it is not anything dangerous. Now, once that detailed information is being processed in the cortex, I like to say the cortex is watching, the, the amygdala is watching cortex television, what's going on up there. So the amygdala has access to that increasingly detailed information. And now the amygdala can kind of stand down, can stop producing the defense response. But let's remember what just happened to you. You just released a bunch of adrenaline. Your muscle tension's increased. You know, your heart rate is increased. It doesn't click off immediately and it doesn't wash out of your body immediately. And so this is why sometimes when we have a reaction to something and we feel, uh, have a fright about it, you know, and we are, have this whole bodily reaction and then we see what it actually is or then we think about what actually is going on and we say this, this, re this response doesn't make sense why we still sometimes can't shake it. And we say, but why am I afraid? And I am definitely afraid. And this is a very real response. And this is why other people might say, no, no, you're not really afraid or don't trust that react. No, it's a very real reaction. We can measure the hormonal and biological, you know, physiological changes in your body, your heart rate, your blood pressure. We can measure, it's real, something happened. And so it's hard sometimes to say, really? Cause I feel afraid. You know, I feel afraid. I feel like something bad is about to happen. And that is the cortex interpretation of this bodily response, which is very useful to have that feeling. There could be a danger here. And how do we know? How do we know how to sort this out unless we understand these pathways? And we say, well, yeah, you're feeling this emotional reaction, part of the defense response because of what the amygdala did. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're in danger. There's a little curved stick lying here. You know, you're not in danger. Why am I feeling all this in my body? And why is my heart pounding? The amygdala. And now you see why it's so used to be to, it's so useful for us to have the, the ability to talk to our clients about the amygdala and to explain where it fits in this picture. And to say, whenever you are experiencing the, um, the defense response or anxiety or fear or pa a panic attack, the amygdala is part of that process. It's what turns on the defense response. And if we want to learn how to turn it off, we do have a lot of information about that. And we do have some information too about how to use the cortex to help calm down the situation. But also you can use the cortex to make the situation worse. And some of you may have already figured this out. If we have this second pathway where the pathway goes from sensory experience to thalamus to the cortex and then the amygdala monitoring the cortex can react. That second pathway through the cortex, that longer pathway, 
Some people will say to me, these very clever people say, could you even have a reaction just from something you're thinking about in the cortex or you're imagining like you could be sitting safely, right? You know, listening to this and trying to focus on this podcast. And at the same time, you're thinking, how am I going to pay my mortgage? Am I going to get evicted? And you're going to have images of being evicted from your home and your, your family having difficulties with finances and food. And you're just thinking about... And even though none of this is happening, your amygdala can react to the cortex. So we have the amygdala pathway and the cortex pathway. And if you want to treat anxiety, you need to understand how to treat both pathways. So the cortex itself can also generate, can lead to this defensive response. I would say it can, it can not initiate it really like the ignition switch because that's more the amygdala does that, but it can actually be an amygdala activator. You know, it can be the source of the amygdala's concern. So we we want to watch out for amygdala activating thoughts because we can definitely have those. And uh, the amygdala can react to what's going on in the cortex. I like to say what happens in the cortex doesn't stay in the cortex. Because the amygdala is kind of watching cortex TV. It's monitoring. Monitoring, watching cortex television, right. And you talked about how the amygdala is wired up to the cortex, so it's influential. Oh, yeah. Can can you talk a little bit more about, about that? Okay. Well, you want to know where I see this? Sometimes I see this in my classroom when I'm trying to give a probably, you can imagine it's probably a very interesting lecture to my students, but all of a sudden, you know what they're watching? They're watching these big stink bugs. Do you have those that fly around? They're kind of like the size of June bugs, but they're, I guess they're from Japan or something. Anyway, they're flying around the room and my students are really captivated or frightened by these bugs. And what has happened is their cortexes have been influenced by the amygdala. They've been hijacked by the amygdala. The amygdala can say, watch that, keep your mind on that bug, watch, keep an eye on that, keep an eye on that. And it might not be a bug. It might be, keep your thoughts on your daughter who isn't home from curfew yet. Or they might be, keep your mind on your on your bank account because you might you know, be suddenly facing a bankruptcy or what, whatever your cortex is focusing on like that, it can be because the amygdala is um, influencing your attentional processes. And this makes sense. You know, if we, you have to remember, I like to say, remember, we are the descendants of the scared people, right? The people who, when they saw something dangerous, they couldn't take their mind off it. And they were more likely to protect themselves and their children. If there was someone who's like, yeah, I saw I saw a tiger earlier this morning, but I'm not focusing on that tiger. It's, a, it's you know, out of sight, out of mind. That person is very chill, laid back person, but also they and their children were more were more at, at risk. Right. So we're the descendants of the frightened people, the people whose amygdalas said, if you see a tiger, think about it all morning. This is the other thing I want to say about the amygdala. It doesn't just process things, but it also creates memories of things. So. Let me just tell this story. I went, um, when I was driving home, I, I had an accident. When I was turning right in a vehicle, a car hit me. I didn't know there was a sensation in your body of turning right. But after that happened, every time I turned right in a vehicle, the certain physiological sensation, you know, the pull, 
But I didn't even know there was a feeling. But after that, I knew because every time I felt that turning right feeling, it was just like there was a pain. My amygdala would be like, danger, danger. And see, here's something else the amygdala does. If you have an experience, whether it's a physical sensation, something you see, like one of my favorite examples is for a child, maybe um, the red velvet coat and white beard of a man that someone forced you to sit on his lap and they wouldn't let you, he wouldn't let you go while your parents took picture after picture after picture and tried to get you to smile, but you just wanted to get away. And it was a terrible experience. Your amygdala, the next time it sees white beard, um, velvet red coat, might might produce a defense response, memory. And, and of course, that's the story of little, little Albert, <laughs> the, ch- the child who was uh, conditioned to fear Santa Claus, although the, the reality and the story are, are slightly different. Well, we learn to associate with fear things that have been paired with a negative event. And that's that's a really important way to explain it to people, to say when an object, a situation is paired with a negative event, and it doesn't have to be cause and effect. It can just be, I'm a rabbit hopping along next to a certain raspberry bush and a fox jumps at me, the next time I'm around a raspberry bush, particularly that one, but actually any raspberry bush as that rabbit, that fear is going to now be produced in response to that raspberry bush, right? So what happens is a something we call a trigger, you know, I'm not going to talk about conditioned stimuli, but this is what it is. And this is where it's happening in the amygdala. It makes me so happy to tell my students, I had to learn all this and we did not know it was in the amygdala. Now I can teach you it's in the amygdala. So the amygdala learns that this is a danger signal because it was paired with a negative event right? But how, what does it do? What does the amygdala do? What it does is it actually creates an emotional memory. And what this is, is whether we're talking about a raspberry bush or Santa's red suit, or talking about that sensation of turning to the right, when the amygdala recognizes that sensation, those sensory experiences, the amygdala responds to that by creating the fear, the defense response, right? Now, what that is, how does that happen? Because the the memory in our brain that's stored somewhere in our brain, the amygdala connects to it an emotional memory. It's almost like, I'll say, I'll say it like in a simple way. Like, let's say you think of the memory, you know, as like maybe like a, a, a DVD disc or something. But what the what the what the uh, amygdala does is stick a little post-it note on there saying fear, you know, or danger or whatever. Like this is, and so it connects an emotional response to that memory. Whereas before it was simply a memory, but now it has an emotional tag on it. So when it is activated, something happens. So the amygdala processes. I remember this situation. I remember this sensation. I remember this person. Then. The emotion follows because an emotional memory has been created by the amygdala and the amygdala retrieves it and it produces this, you know, produces this. So it's once you understand, and you know, this is why I love treating anxiety disorders because I kind of have have an idea of what's going on in the brain. We don't have that for autism, bipolar disorder. We don't have that for depression, Saul. We don't know, you know. 
We really don't. But we can talk about this. It's so amazing that we can tell people the reason why you're reacting is because these parts in the brain doing this part, communicating with it. You know, it's just really a helpful diagram that makes people step back from their experience and start to see it differently. And and I'm telling you, there is nothing more freeing than realizing the reason my heart is pounding right now is because my amygdala is reacting. But my amygdala can react in 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 um, error, right? My amygdala can react to a stick as if it's a snake. And then you can kind of think to yourself, my heart is pounding. Should I take this quote seriously or should I try to be kind of mindful about like, yeah, my heart's pounding. But that is to get me ready to run or fight. It's And it's not appropriate in this situation, right? It allows that kind of mindfulness uh, processing of some of the physiological experiences you're having that before people would say, I'm having a heart attack. And they'd go, they'd go to the, the emergency room or they would say, I have to take this seriously. It's a real feeling indicating real danger. Yes, it's a real feeling. It does not indicate real danger because the amygdala can be wrong. And once people understand this process and how it works, then it really is a game changer for us. It's a huge game changer in treating anxiety. And this is why I'm trying to explain to people that we do know how to rewire the anxious brain. We do know how to teach the cortex and how to teach the amygdala. And it's two completely different areas of the brain. And sometimes I'll say to people when they'll try to tell me, you know, I've tried to talk to myself and say, I shouldn't be afraid of getting in this car with someone or riding with someone after a car accident. And I shouldn't be afraid. And I've told myself she's a safe driver. The weather is good. It's not icy road. And I say, you're talking to the cortex and and the anxiety begins in the amygdala. And I said, it's like going to the refrigerator when your car won't start. You know, you're, wrong place. Let's go to the right place. So the the uh, amygdala has more direct influence on the cortex than the cortex has direct influence on the amygdala. Oh, for sure. Yes, yes. The amygdala has more power. And you know what? You might say that is kind of ridiculous. But you know, what? when it comes to life or death, the amygdala is like, let's be safe rather than sorry. Let's jump away from sticks sometimes just to keep you safe. And also says to the cortex, you have too much, you take too much time deciding what to do. You know, I I just jump right in there and do something. And meanwhile, you'd be saying, should I turn right? Should I turn left? Should I hit the brake? Why is she getting in my lane? And who is it? You know, the cortex can get in your way sometimes. The amygdala is like, I want to just jump in, take over. You you were talking about how memories are laid down, uh, emotional memories are laid down by the amygdala and those become associated with uh, other stimuli, other things that trigger that emotional memory mm-hmm. and therefore the emotion. I- I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about people who have anxieties about things they may not have experienced. So I've worked with some people who have phobias, but never had a bad experience with the dog or the whatever it is that they're phobic about. How does something like that happen? Well, first of all, I want to point out that the memories of the amygdala are not your memories. So sometimes things happen with the amygdala that you don't remember. You know, I had a I had a client who was telling me about her difficulties being at her in-laws home and didn't she didn't understand and we eventually figured out 
this wonderful family environment she was going to. And she said, no one, you know, many of us have reasons to fear our, our in-laws. She didn't. She, um, she, she described being in a circle around the, the Thanksgiving table or being in a circle playing games at a, at a shower for a baby or being in a circle watching tell and all of these things. I said, wait a minute, everything you're describing is the family's in a circle. Have you ever had a bad experience in a circle? And she said, no, wait a minute. And she could immediately, when I asked her, think about being in a circle, she could remember in second grade, a time when the kids were all taking turns reading and she had a stutter and she was having a lot of trouble and she just was going to have a meltdown. She thought she was going to pee her pants. She was, the teacher kept saying, start over, start over, you know. And so then we were able to say, now you remember why sitting in a circle of people can be frightening for you. The amygdala remembers that you didn't really until we really pried into it. But even let's say you can't remember it. Um, you know, there can be situations where someone has no memory of it, but their parent might tell them, oh, yes, a dog knocked you over when you were two. You don't remember that? No. I Well, your amygdala does, you know. So first of all, we have that. So don't assume that just because you don't remember it, that something didn't happen because the amygdala remembers when you don't sometimes. The other thing is that we found certain fears are kind of built into us that People are more afraid of animals and heights and water and honestly, people looking at them than would be predicted on the basis of chance. It's almost like it's built into us. And we think that it is. We think that the amygdala is almost prone to be afraid of things. And why would, you know, like, why would my daughters be afraid of thunderstorms? You know, I don't understand that, but they were. And, and or insects, little tiny insects, but a child will walk out in front of cars, but will scream about an insect. And it looks like there's some evolutionary programming in the amygdala. But I want to say that doesn't mean that we can't get over it. You know, um, we may be kind of programmed to be afraid of animals, but I bet a bunch of our listeners here are sleeping with those sharp toothed tooth little things in their bed while your neck is completely exposed as you sleep. Not anymore. They're not. <laughs> Not anymore now. Uh-oh. So anyway, we we don't think that fears are like randomly determined or just formed from experience. We think our amygdala is somewhat prepared. And also, if you observe someone else being afraid of something, your amygdala learns from that modeling, which is very, very interesting and a very useful thing too, I think. Because do, don't you think it's useful, just like we're the descendants of the frightened people, wouldn't it be useful if you inherit a tendency to be afraid of things the adults around you are afraid of? That would be a good thing. I think that would be adaptive, right? So our amygdalas learn in these ways, but also let's not let's not forget that what happens in the cortex doesn't stay in the cortex. So let's go there. What about if you've never had a bad experience with a dog, but you've heard your grandparents talk about being chased by dogs? or bitten by dogs, or you've heard stories, um, or you've seen a terrible movie that made you think, or even it was a good movie, but in the end they killed the dog and that's traumatizing. So seeing a dog, even though the dog didn't hurt anyone, the, the image of a dog has been paired with a negative event. You saw the dog get killed. 
And the dog never hurt anyone, but you're afraid of the dog because it was paired with a traumatic event that you went through. And you only went through it by watching a movie or by hearing a story. Or here's even something worse. What about if you just imagine things? Like what if I imagine when my daughter's late coming home? What if I imagine that she is in a car accident and her car's upside down in a ditch and she's bleeding and you know, she only has moments to live. And, and I go through this, you know, then it could be because I put myself through that. Every time my daughter is late, I start having panic attacks, not because anything bad's ever happened to my daughter, but because my cortex has set this up. So you kind of conditioned yourself. So there are a lot of ways that something can become a f stimulus for fear. A trigger. Yeah, a trigger, trigger for fear. A trigger. Yeah. You know, you could have direct experience or it could have been modeled, something you've seen or heard about. It could be, uh, there's certain fears that seem to be built in, uh, memories that we may not even consciously remember, things that happened to us, or generalized. So the person you were working with generalized from sitting around in a circle as second grader to sitting around in a circle as adults, or even, even uh, imagined uh, fears. And, and remember, when you say generalized, if you think of the amygdala, the amygdala doesn't create an image of second graders sitting around in a circle on their little tiny chairs. You know, that might be your memory in your cortex, but the amygdala is like faces in a circle, smiling, laughing, you know, uh, making fun. And it doesn't matter. Now you see people in a circle, smiling, laughing, and suddenly you have a feeling that this is a danger, this is unsafe. The emotion of fear has just been created from a memory that was enough like this. But the amygdala, it doesn't process it as little children in little chairs reading Dr. Seuss. That's the cortex. So generalizing, you can see why generalizing occurs not just afraid of one dog, you're afraid of all dogs, you know, not just afraid of uh, a white rabbit, you're afraid of white cats too. Right. And the, the, the amygdala is not specifying. It's saying, here's this general situation where danger happened. Mm -hmm. White fur, bad, scary. So I want to think a little bit or talk a little bit with you about that imagined or the, the role of the cortex mm -hmm. in, in sort of creating this fear. And if it's a fear, for example, um, imagining your, your daughter overturned in a ditch somewhere, mm -hmm. you know that that's highly unlikely. Well, the more I think about it and the more my heart starts to pound and the more my mouth gets dry, the more I start to wonder what's likely or not, because something really feels like a bad thing's going to happen. It, mm -hmm. you know, it really, you have to remember, sometimes people, they'll say, I think this is a good way to think about it. It's a false alarm going off. Your amygdala is going off when there isn't a danger. But it's not like when your smoke detector is going off and it's a sound or your engine lights on and it's just a little light. This is a feeling of danger. So you got to remember for the person that all of us experiencing this, it really is about feeling the same feeling you feel when a tiger is about ready to pounce on you. You're really feeling that real feeling, right? But there's no reason for it. It's a false alarm. Just ignore it, you know? But we are not 
very able to just disregard that sense of dread, the panic, the fear, the anxiety. And then there's, you know, also, I don't want to, for, you know, when you're saying, what about the cortex? Don't forget about our worry circuitry in our left frontal lobe, you know, where we can create what's worry. Worry is your ability. That's an amazing human ability to imagine things you've never seen and to think those things through. And with worry, you're really focused on negative outcomes that are possible, negative outcomes that are possible. And when we we recognize this worry, this idea of, of um, we have an image that something bad could happen, like my daughter could be in an accident. She should have been home. She isn't. One reason why she could, and I don't know what percentage that reason is. Maybe it's a small percentage, but it's not zero. And so you begin to have this thought and now your amygdala reacts to the thought just like it might if you were actually seeing her. This is why we can do like exposure in, we don't have to always do in vivo. We can do imaginal exposure because you can imagine a dog being here and Mm -hmm. react. But here's the thing. If you think of how this was probably adaptive for our ancestors The reason it was probably adaptive is because when you got a potential negative outcome that you imagined, like say a woman who my favorite little example is a woman who's building a hut and he builds it near a little stream and then she's living in it. And just one day everything's working out fine. She's got her stuff in the hut. She can, you know, fish, get, she can wash her kids in in the river really close and all. It's just really great. But one day it's raining and she starts seeing the, the stream rising and she gets a thought in her head. This is one of the very first people worrying. And she thinks to herself, she can imagine the, the stream getting higher and higher and higher and washing away her little hut, washing away her little kids, washing away all the stuff she stored in it. So then what she does, she shifts to her planning circuitry also in the frontal lobes. And she makes a plan about how to move her little hut, or at least the stuff in it, and her kids to a new location, build a hut that is up on a hill, maybe. Now that is, she made a plan and she acted on the plan. So what makes worry helpful is it alerts us to a potential danger, gives us an opportunity to use our planning abilities to protect ourselves from that potential outcome, negative outcome. You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal, and our guide today to the healthy brain and happy body was Dr. Catherine Pittman, a clinical psychologist, professor of psychology, author of numerous books, and an amygdala whisperer. You can learn more about Catherine and her work in the show notes. Remember, you can join NRBS at our virtual conference on October 21st and 22nd with a 25% discount by registering with the code HAPPYLISTENER at nrbs.org. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link in the show notes or wherever you get your podcasts. We really want to hear from you. Be part of this ongoing conversation by contacting us with your thoughts, ideas, and questions at healthybrain at nrbs.org. Leave us reviews as well. It really helps podcasts like this one reach more listeners. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. 
Be sure to join us in our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body.